Welcome to another Directions Mag podcast, co-hosted with our friends at Eurissa. I'm Barbara Duke, Managing Editor here at Directions Magazine, joined by Dr. Shannon White from William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, along with Dr. Matt Gerke, Chair of the Eurissa Professional Education Committee. Today, we're chatting with Shannon about her experience in teaching university students good data habits. So Shannon, let's just dig right in. How do you explain data organization and management to your students? You know, you all wanted to talk to me about data management and the way that I talk about data management with most folks, it doesn't matter if you're a workshop participant or you're a colleague or you're somebody who's, you know, just another professional asking me how I do it or you're a student in my classroom, my response is always the same. The first thing is, Imagine that you win the lottery tomorrow and someone has to take over your job because you're saying goodbye um, in a very positive way. You know, we don't want to think about being hit by the bus. We want to think about the lottery. Um, So if you win the lottery, you don't show back up to work the next day and someone else has to carry on your work. Um, While you believe that you would be helpful, there's a whole lot else that's going on in your life and you may not you know, you may not be able to do that data management piece where you sit down with them and say, this is where I started and this is where I went. And so um, in in workshops and in my classes, what I do is I walk through an entire folder structure with my students and I talk to them about how I manage data. Um, And then I I actually require them to do some sort of data management. It doesn't have to be precisely the way that I do it because their brains may work differently than mine. But what I what I do insist upon is um, is two things: that everything is in one folder, and that inside of that folder there's a process document that helps me understand what you are doing. Those two things I think are, are pretty key. Um, the third one would be in the naming structures, but that's that's something we can talk about a little bit later. Um, the first thing is, is that I have a blank file folder set that sits on one of my drives that every time I'm starting a new project, I copy it, I make a copy of it, and I rename it from new GIS project to whatever that project is about. Right. Um, And I use those standard naming procedures where I'm not starting with a number. I'm not using special characters. I don't have spaces. And I go through all of those types of things that different GIS programs might hiccup on. And these days, a lot of my students who have always been around computers and using iPhones, they don't believe me that having a space in something won't cause a problem because it hasn't caused a a problem for them yet. And when they get deeper and deeper into those analysis tools, those can be programmed for some limitations. And it may be the, you know, space inside of the file name, the folder name, the path name, um, the special character that the IT person puts in because they're giving you permission onto um, onto a server and you are one of many users. And so they do users and as a shortcut, put in a dollar sign. Um, that happens here at our university. And so we have to have them repath um, with a direct link so that they do not have that special character because that will throw an error every, every time. Um, 
But thinking about those things and how long is your path name, just because you can call it Shannon's favorite project about animals, doesn't mean that it should be that long of a title. Um, it should be animals or SHW, my initials, and then animals. Um, something really short that's also something that someone else might understand. Um, the and once you get into the practice of it, right, once you get into the practice of the naming conventions and the structures, then you just always do it and it becomes natural and it becomes what you do every every time you do a GIS project. So I start my project with a folder structure and in that folder structure, I have data as a subfolder. I have document docs is what i call it not documents because i want to keep it short docs which are not just the documents that i'm creating but the documents that might have to do with other research that i'm using as comparable research or people's models that have been created and maybe it's the information about those models i have an images file folder i usually name it img or imgs um, <clears throat> to keep it short and in there, it's not just your raster data or your image that you're going to georeference. It's also the logos of the organization um, that I'm working for or that I'm working with. Um, it's the images of the field work or things that I might want to put on a poster or later down the road might want in a presentation that complement the GIS and the analysis that I'm doing. The next folder, I always, always, always have a mis miscellaneous folder. I am. I, I am always thinking like there there could be something that doesn't fit the data, the documents, um, and the images folder. So I have this MISC folder, um, and oftentimes what I use that for is after I've opened up a zip data set and I've imported it into my geo database, that zip file is the original clean data, and so I I shove that into my my miscellaneous folder just as sort of an archive right so that if if i corrupt my data or if something happens that the project has a problem i've got that inside that folder structure and if i win the lottery the next person coming along would be able to go back to the very beginning of my project and and get to that that data from a research perspective i want replicability of my work and so if I'm able to share not only the journal article about my research, I also can share the original data through something like ScholarWorks or another, um, another means, then that gives me that ability to also say, this is the data that I downloaded and I keep track of it in my process document of this is the data, this is what the zip file is called, and this is the date that I downloaded it. Because we know that data changes and sometimes, different entities if you download it from them it could be that you download it in 2017 and it includes 2015 data but you go back in 2019 and it's going to have the same exact name because of the way that it's pulling it off the server and so i always want to make sure that i know not only the vintage of it that the that the data producer has but i also want to know what's the vintage that i downloaded it um, because that's important if you're going to write a paper, if you're going to, to take care of things. And so if I start a project, I'm going to start with that file structure and then I'm going to start building out from there. Um, and 
And the, the things about where does it go? I get that question a lot. Like, okay, what if I have this, where does it go? The big picture is, does it make sense to you? And would it kind of make sense to another person? I think it could go anywhere. So my process document could go into my docs folder, or it could be in the uppermost folder so that when you open up the project, you see the process document and maybe the APRX, or if it's QGIS, you know, the project file um, at that uppermost level. Don't make people go hunting for it. If, if they need to hunt for it, then at least provide a text-based readme file. Um, I have a colleague that loved a readme file. Um, and for me, I just include that in my process document. I, I say, okay, this is where these things, this is the type of thing you're going to find in these subfolders. Um, and if there's anything that's sort of questionable, I'll give full details on that. Um, when I teach workshops and when I teach my classes, one of the things that I, I talk about is habit. Okay, so first thing in the morning, I'm coming in to work on my project. The first thing I open is my process document. Second thing I open is my project, and I'm lucky enough to have multiple monitors so I can have each one of those on a separate screen. Um, my students love Google Docs. I love Google Docs too, but I don't like Google Docs for process documents. It's very difficult to put in screenshots in Google Docs and get them back out to put them into Google Slides or into PowerPoint. So I actually do use Microsoft Word for that because it's easier for me to grab those screen captures back out because I'm not just thinking about today and what I'm doing. I'm thinking about when I write that paper up or I give that presentation or if somebody asks me, how did I do it? What are some of those things that I might need three years from now that I can't go back and and easily recreate if I'm capturing it while I'm doing the work. That is the power, right? It's the power of having it and you can always come back to it because you may win the lottery five years from now, but someone else sits down in your seat and needs to use the project that you created three to five years ago. Um, and, and having that where you don't have to go back and tell them, this is what I did step by step, that process document actually becomes that documentation. And what's really great is um, here at William & Mary in the Center for Geospatial Analysis, I have fellows that change from year to year on a fellowship and they document their processes. And once I told them, you know, if you put the screenshots in, if you if you describe what you did, even if it's something that didn't work, you're saving somebody from recreating that same problem and going through that same issue. The other part of it is that if we do work for a client, we send the process document as part of the deliverables. And one of the ones this year that we worked on, that became an appendices in this person's grant because it was the replicability of what their work was and that's powerful it's not just about the data it's also about the procedures and the methods that we're choosing and why are we choosing them because those methods and those processes can change the tools can change over time um, the data may or may not change and so being able to do that is, is really powerful um, and giving everybody the toolbox that you have the scripts in or that you've saved, the, saved a model builder model in um, is just as important as providing somebody with what that model is and what were the things that you input into it. Because if they don't understand what the variables are 
by the file name, that's going to just cause them more time to get in and dig in and try to do that work. Ooh, so what's, what's interesting to me is that I teach data management sort of consistently, whether you're working with me as a colleague or if you are a student of mine or however. And part of it is that I think my, my colleagues and my students now recognize poor data management because of that. Um, and so I get text messages from them every so often that sort of make me laugh because it's one of those things where it's, you know, my project geodatabase, you know, with us, with potentially a space in it. So they're just taking the defaults, right? Like it's, it's the part of data management where no one's thinking about it because they're just taking the defaults. And um, they send me these things and it's really funny because they, um, because they are thinking about what, what they wanted when they inherited a project and they see their colleagues work and they're like, oh, you know, you've asked me to help you, but I can't even tell where anything is because you've named it, you know, um, final lines one, final lines two. Well, if it's final, how come there's a two at the end of that? Um, and we've all seen it, right? We've all seen bad data, data management. We know what it, we know what that looks like. I think the harder part is when we think about good data management and what that does look like and, and how do we emulate it on a day-to-day -day basis when we have five things hitting us at the same time. Um, at work um, as well as you know in our personal lives and all of those things so i i think that that's one of those things that that is is a rough a rough place to be is when you inherit bad data but it's a rougher place to be when you're feeling guilty that you don't have good data management and you've seen other people have good data management I've had to mentor a number of people on that particular issue. And it's interesting to me, when you inherit, do you reorganize, do you rename? Um, one of the things that I try to emphasize to folks is if, if you have a data set that you've inherited and maybe it's got five geodatabases because the person was not really maintaining the data. They were just bringing things in and testing them out as they were going along. And eventually they got to the final stage that they were at um, when they left the project. And I think there's different approaches to this. Most often, if it's really bad, if it's one of those things where you have someone who's named something final, and then they've said final, and then final underscore line, and then one, and then final underscore line two, and final underscore line three, you know, you're getting into those versions of a final product, which makes no sense. You know, it can't be final one and final three. It's version three, period. Um, it's not finalized because you keep working at it. And with GIS, we often do. So I generally tell students, don't put the word final into it. At the end of it, say V1, V2, V3, V4, V5. So you know sequentially where you are with that. Um, because sometimes you do return to a project two years later and your new final 
for final 2023, you know, are you, are you having to give it a date now because you've put that word final in there? Um, the, the thing that I suggest is if you have a project data management goal when you're going into kind of a messy project is to start by having the conversation with all of the stakeholders. So I, I've had this happen on our own team with external clients where it switched from one fellow in one year to another fellow in the next year. Um, and it, maybe it had two or three years of, of okay data management. And then the next person coming in said, all right, we have got to refigure this out. Or this spring, we had a student who had been working with a faculty member on some research and they had their data stored on their personal computer, on drives, on a server, and on USB drives. And then they were leaving the university and were handing this over to this new undergraduate who's a freshman trying to figure out after their first GIS class how to move into being a research person with GIS. And so the first thing that I asked Charlotte to do was go back and look at the final layouts and figure out what were the layers that were really the absolute necessary ones, import those into a new geo database, and then start to figure out the other layers that were necessary that, that were important to the researcher. Now, did we do we still have a copy of what was left from the first student? Absolutely, because we don't wanna recreate wheels if we know it's there. But part of it too is that the process document for this particular project, there were domains and subtypes that were set up inside of the geo database. And the new student who had only had an intro GIS class had not gotten really deep into domains and subtypes, wouldn't have even known to look for that. And so the documentation has to not only be about the processes, but it has to be about the data. And what is that translation of um, a number one value for something that's usually a text-based value um, because you've put it in as coded domains. And, and I think that that piece of it, you know, if you don't have the historic memory, if I hadn't been present working with the first student and bridging to the second student with a researcher who knows enough to be dangerous about GIS, but not enough to be able to manage the data and think about the analysis. Um, they kind of know what they want their end product to be in the analysis, but they don't know how to get there. That part, if I walked away, that could be a problem, right? So making sure that it's clear to every person in the future and so that the other students working on the same geography um, because there's like five graduate students and several undergraduate students all working in the same geography so that they don't recreate data. Um, one of the things that I often will suggest when you know you have something that's near final stage and you know that you could share it with someone else with confidence, um, if you have a shared folder system, whether that's on an enterprise GIS or just a folder on a server, create a geo database that is the shared project geo database where people can grab that data and pull it out into their their projects and manipulate it from there. 
um, or if you're in an enterprise system where you can check out the data um, and make the data manipulations and things like that. Um, with long-term projects, I do suggest years. Um, so this has been a multi-year project and knowing this is where the tree data was in 2019, 2020, and 2022, um, they were at different stages. And um, we're talking like 600 trees from a survey by type of tree, as well as some other categories of the trees that were important to the anthropologist that was looking at it. Um, it's a lot of data. You don't want to recreate that data. You may need to clean up that data, but you need to have what was created before so that you can show why the next person had to go in and manipulate it and why we have a 2022 version versus a 2019 version. And maybe we'll have a 2026 version, right? Um, because more surveys may be taken. There may be more information that we gather or learn about um, that will go into those same data sets that we haven't planned for now. But that process document becomes absolutely necessary to pass that information forward because that person may not physically be here. That person may have moved on to the next job or graduate school for students. And um, maybe you can get in touch with them. Maybe they remember, maybe they don't remember. Um, but being able to then publish it, not only what you're doing but publish your data you also need that for your metadata that you know you didn't create the first 500 trees you added in the next 100 so continuing the metadata inside of that data as well um, can be important and everybody hates metadata they hate to create it but they absolutely love it when their data includes metadata and so it's an equal thing. You can't just say, I want data with metadata. You have to produce data with metadata. Uh, I, I think the, I think we've kind of danced around the, the, the backup strategies. You know, maybe if you, you can talk about that for, for a little bit, you know, if it's students working on their final project, you know, how do you, how do you coach them or how do you get them thinking about, you know, you, you you may want to have incremental backups of the data. So if something gets corrupted or something gets deleted, they don't have to redo their entire project all at the end. So the thing that, that I, the, the way that I often talk about data and why to backup data is I go back to my very first, absolutely first GIS project that was me creating data. At that point in time, there wasn't the Minnesota historical census data. I was looking at um, Jim Crow laws um, from a book and translating those into data for the GIS, but I needed county-based data. And I was creating county-based census data for eight states um, that was historic data. And you know, data is data, right? Once you've created the data, it exists. You know, once it's in that geo database, it doesn't matter if the software changes, it's still data. Um, you know, the project names might change, the other things might change, but it's data. So I'm working on this project and all of a sudden, I was at NC State University, this squirrel decides to kamikaze itself into an electrical transformer. And when it did that, it knocked out the power across all of the university. And I had been sitting at the computer probably four to six hours, and I probably hadn't been hitting Control-S or Save, um, but every so often. 
And, and so when the power went out and I just sort of dropped my face, like, oh my goodness, what has just happened? The professor that I worked with actually didn't think I was going to come back um, because they thought that it was traumatic, which it slightly was. But I knew all along I had been saving all of the joins of the data that I had been doing and I had been exporting them at that point in time back in the day of the shapefile, um, the original days of the shapefile. I had been exporting them out. So I knew if the project was gone, the data was still there and I just needed to recreate bringing that back in. And um, I, I used that story and I, I know that that's probably too long of a story to probably include in the podcast, but but that ca that came about with a a mantra that I now have: save, save often, save now. And I also started packing an egg timer in my backpack because I can hyperfocus. It's everyone can. You get really into your data, you get into your data processes or your geo processes. And you forget to hit that control S and it doesn't automatically back up for you. But if you set an egg timer or these days with a cell phone, um, you set a reminder to, you know, every 20 minutes just to hit control S that it breaks you from that concentration. That's the first level of backup, right? Is to hit control S or save. Um, the next level of backup is, well, what would have happened if, if that squirrel, had kamikaze and the power goes out what would have happened if it had fried the server that i was working on you know wh what happens when there's a major malfunction of the hardware what do you do um you need to know your organization's backup policy do they back up every hour on the hour do they back up every day at a certain time do they back up weekly do they back up monthly? How far back does it go? Because when you have that catastrophic thing happen, and it's not if, it's when. When that happens, where is your data? Um, where can you reposition and pull that from? Create a calendar event. On a monthly basis, are you backing up your drives? And I'm talking about even your laptop or desktop. It may, now, in some jobs, I get it. National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, you can't take that outside of, of your work. But for many of us, they will provide a, a backup hard drive that you could use on a monthly basis that you could lock in your drawer at work that is the backup of everything that you have. Um, if, you, if you are in a non-secure type of job, we're going to leave those folks at NGA and, and those types of jobs um, kind of to the side because they have their own ways of backing things up. But if you're in an everyday circumstance, whether you're a student, you're, you're a researcher at a university, or you are an employee in a, a county level GIS office, there needs to be a way in which you could recover your data. And if, if something catastrophic happens, where where do you have that now there are the extremes there are people who will um well especially working on their phds i heard lots of lots of stories um back in the day so people were backing up to cds and dvds and then um mailing them to people or putting them in the freezer and which i never understood and then someone said well refrigerators usually in a fire still exist and so if you put it in the freezer then it'll be there and i'm like but it's it's probably going 
like the technology was, it, there was a flaw in there. Um, but I, I know what they were going for. They were going for the fireproof safe. Um, most of us, our organizations are doing the backup for us, but we may not know how that recovery works and how often is that happening? Are you only losing a day? Are you only losing an hour? Um, but take it upon yourself to back it up. If you have important data, it is your research and you have a trusted friend or family member, put it on a tough hard drive, mail it to them, UPS, FedEx, who, you know, US Postal Service um, or Euro Postal Service, mail it to them as a backup in a different place. Why? Well, I've lived in places with tornadoes. I've lived in places with hurricanes, flooding, those types of things. What if your what if something happened to to your laptop? What if what if it was stolen? What if you know, there's a lot of what ifs there. So making sure that you're backing up, it seems like such a simple thing. But most people forget and they realize they haven't backed up until the moment that they need to have that backup. Um, I, I put it on as a calendar event. And it's funny, yet yesterday I had a, a colleague tell me that she, thank you for reminding her to back up her files because even within the university, they went to a new system um, and the OneDrive didn't back up all of her documents. And, and in that transition, she lost things, but she really didn't because I had told her, you might want to back it up before they make this transition. All really good stuff, Shan. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. So uh, you've talked through lots of different examples and perspectives. Any last tip or trick? The 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 one thing you should do? You know, I think it's I think it's hard to think about um, data and data management. I know um, here in the center we deal with things that have. Um, research protocols that go along with them that not everybody should or can have access to data. Um, and so making sure that you also understand how the security rules work um, and working with your IT folks to make sure that the people who need access to certain levels of data have that access. But, you know, at, at other levels, you may not you may only need to view the data or you may not need to see that data at all because of the sensitivity of the data itself and making sure that you have that in a secure location and then when you're producing your final maps that you're generalizing that data. Um, we do have that situation and I work directly with our IT folks um, who work with that security and think helping me think through, you know, what does the security look like today for the project, but what does it look like long term? And what does that backup look like as well um, in the access and, and what happens um, to it in, in a long-term situation. Um, the other thing is I think that um, there's always flexibility that we have to have in, you know, naming structure, structures and things like that. Um, part of it is what's common sense to one person may not be common sense to another person. So for me, when I'm creating new data through a spatial join, I generally name it SJ and then underscore and then you know, the two items that are being spatial joint, spatially joined. So I have these naming structures that I give as examples in my classes and people are like, oh, that's really smart. Well, it's smart up until the point in which it's in that final product. And then I have to do the, the renaming of it. Um, and, and it may be that if it's for a client, they don't need all the intermediary. And so I do 
potentially create this new geo database to hand over the data that's that is the final data but it's it's named something that they understand um, and I have that documentation piece to it um, I think that as the technology changes that also impacts us so for people who've been in the GIS world or the geospatial world for 10 20 <laughs> more more years um, we've seen data types come and go you know, the E00 file is not supported by most software these days. You have to have an older version of the software in order to even crack it open to, to make that coverage work. Um, and so thinking about how you're saving your data, I get a lot of people who know that there is power beyond the shapefile in the geo database, but they don't understand that the geo database serves as like a file cabinet. It makes your data easier to manage just in the nature of the existence of the geo database. Um, and that I think is is one of those key tips of don't let your data just float around. Bring it into the geo database, put it in that file folder. You know, if you have to have sub data sets because you can set up data sets, do that that part and piece. And for the open source folks who absolutely adore and love shapefiles, that's great. That's fine. But make sure that you don't include all the extra intermediate ones that don't mean anything um, when you're handing over a project. If you delete it out of your project, you need to delete it out of your file folder and out of your um, geodatabase or however you're storing it. Um, that long-term data management, when you have something that fails, you acknowledge it, say I tried it, but don't leave it there right? It, it's just bloat at that point in time. It's kind of like um, if you you created a draft of a paper, you probably don't keep 20 copies of it. You probably keep maybe the first copy, an intermediary copy, and then the last copy, um, just so that you have all those versions to kind of compare against. But at some point in time, the other ones, you've got to throw them out. And it's not just removing it from the project so it's not visible. It's removing it, just like delete. Um, why are you naming something final one, final two, final three? If it's no longer needed, get it out of there. Um, and I know that that sounds harsh and people just, they're so nervous about it. But at some point in time, you do have to, to not harm your servers with things that are useless. Um, document that you tried it, get rid of it, um, especially if it didn't work. Um, especially since you've documented how you did it. Screenshots are the best, absolutely the best way to document your processes. Because if you take a screenshot of the, you know, what you filled in, inside of your, um, inside of like a geo process, um, if, if you take a screenshot of that, you don't have to write all those things out. I entered this, I did this, um, you know, name, even naming them as you're going through iterations. Maybe you don't know if you need a three meter buffer, a five meter buffer, a 10 meter buffer. Don't call them buffer one, two, three, call them buff 5M, 3M, 10M, so that you know that there's a, a, a something that you're buffering out um, and, and a distance in there. And those pieces, that you're putting in you're also capturing that inside of that screenshot because it's saying hey i said it at this and then i named it this so i don't have to type all that one screenshot process document move on with my my parts and pieces 
All right. Well, thank you, uh, Shannon, for, for sharing your thoughts on data organization and management, especially in, in the area of education and, and research projects and, and universities. Um, data organization and management remains one of those things where we, we know we all do it and we all have our own systems and ways of doing it. Uh, but we, 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 we probably, um, probably a little bit insecure about how we do that or, or how others do it. And so really value the, the perspective and the stories that you shared and, and the tips and tricks of how you approach this and how you teach this uh, uh, concept to, to help give us more ideas and, and get us thinking about you know, different ways of uh, organizing and structuring and managing uh, uh, data and projects, you know, not just the data, uh, but all those different pieces that, that go into it and, and not just the analysis, uh, but, but also the, the products and the write-ups and the other deliverables and, and the, the paths that may take. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, the next version uh, of the Eurissa Directions Magazine podcast will continue uh, the conversation of data, data organization and management uh, from another perspective.